This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You have the full gamut of the, the, the ethnicity, the cultural you know, presentations and all of that. Uh, and then how it's changed over time. Because there will be correlation to what's happening here as well in terms of the history of it. So... Depending on how deep you want to get, ladies. I mean, you know, just in terms of your first question again, my first thought was how many how many days do you have? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about the cuisines of Hawaii um, and more specifically those of the island of Oahu. Yes, because you may have heard that Lauren and I, along with our super producers, Dylan and Andrew, recently-ish went on a field trip to Hawaii. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. We're still not sure how we got the company to go along <laughs> to with that. To sign up. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. We even got, Lauren and I even got to do some vacation. Vacation? What? I know. I'm still confused about it. <laughs> still confused. But yes, these have been long-awaited episodes. We've been teasing them. We have. Here they are. Yes, uh, we are finally starting our mini-series indeed um, because it was so lovely. And we spent about a week gathering about 18 interviews with yeah. um, with food producers and mixologists and chefs and cultural practitioners and politicians and ranchers. Uh, the, the quote that you heard at the top there was from one Brooks Takanaka. He is the assistant general manager of United Fishing Agency. And he's... Not wrong. No. Um, there is a daunting breadth and depth of food history and culture on Oahu. Yes, we had a lot of ground to cover food-wise, but we did our best to eat all the things. Yes. We're professionals here. We're <laughs> very <laughs> professional when it comes to eating everything. Oh, the best. <laughs> we started as soon as we got there, <laughs> and when we got back to the studio here in Atlanta, we, the super producers and Lauren and I, talked through the experience in the studio. I went across to um, our first our first uh, convenience store yes. experience of the trip, mm-hmm. and within like so yeah, within like two hours of landing, I had already purchased like a bunch of weird drinks, like a yuzu <laughs> soda and some yeah. um, some onigiri, mm-hmm. and oh goodness. And then I went back over oh, and, and got a spam masubi because <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> yep. yeah. I missed the I missed the hot case the first time through. <laughs> but then you told me about it, yeah. and I said, well, I well, didn't bring any sunscreen. 
So I'm just going to go back and remedy this problem. <laughs> I think as soon as I put my stuff down in the hotel, I was like, okay, I'm going to the beach. And I just walked down to the beach and uh, didn't really know where I was going, but I eventually reached the water. And I turned to my left and I could just see the uh, the iconic diamond head monument. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were literally two full rainbows. Yeah. And like, it's the beach and everyone's oh, happy. Man. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> But, yeah, don't worry. It wasn't all convenience store food. Not all. (laughs) No, we had quite the spread. Yes. Oh, goodness. So much, so much poke. Oh, Uh, every day I think we had poke. At least once a day, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, So much other fresh fish, um, wonderful meats and uh, pastries, uh, everything that I could possibly find with passion fruit. Yes. Lilikoi everywhere. Mm -hmm. So many donuts. So many donuts and an unfortunate donut mishap. That we later rectified where we left a precious bag of donuts in an interview room. We did. I hope they got eaten. That's all I care about. I, I hope that at the very least they didn't get eaten ants. by ants. Yes. I hope not as well. And I have to say, I only saw one rainbow the whole time I was there. And the three of you saw a bunch of rainbows. So I don't know what was going on with me. <laughs> I'm a little mad about it. You were, you, you were, looking, you were looking firmly ahead and not above. I guess that's maybe that's some kind of psycho evaluation of me. Yeah. But I don't know. Anyway, I do think it's interesting that we've already done several big Hawaii topics like pineapples, spam, Mai Tais. For a relatively small, isolated island chain, Hawaii has a lot of influence. Uh, a lot of influence and a lot of influences. Um, but, but yeah, it is so striking that these islands are over 2,400 miles away from the nearest landmass, uh, being California. That's almost 4,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. And this miniseries is going to be a bit different than our past miniseries where we focused on specific cities like Asheville or New Orleans. We were primarily operating in Honolulu, which is the state capital and a major metro area, but we ventured out into Oahu at large as well. But okay, I suppose this brings us to our question. Hmm. Hawaii. What is it? Oh, gosh. Uh, (laughs) Well, um, Hawaii is the most recent state to join the American Union just in 1959. It's an archipelago composed of eight major islands and a number of smaller islands and islets. Um, uh, Those main ones are, okay, Hawaii, a.k.a. the Big Island, Maui, Oahu, Kauai, Molokai, Lanai, Ni'ihau, and Kaha'olawe. Um, Although that last one is uninhabited. Yes. Yes. Uh, These islands are the peaks of vast volcanic mountains under the Pacific, uh, the newest of which are still active, um, and they run from oldest to youngest, north to south. Over the millennia, uh, the, the enormous eruptions that formed and reformed the islands have in some places been, been worn by rain and waves into steep cliffs grooved with waterfalls and deep valleys and these wide, flat plains and beaches— Other areas boast craters a mile high and just as wide. There are places where you can drive 10,000 feet up a mountain, right through the cloud line, passing through four distinct climate zones in an hour. We did that. Oh, yes, on Maui. It was great. Story for another day. Um, Hawaii is also one of the smallest states. It's just around 6,500 square miles of land, smaller than New Jersey, and is one of the most densely populated with around 1.42 million residents, according to the 2018 census population estimate. Almost a million of those are on Oahu. Mark Twain called Hawaii the loveliest fleet of islands that lies anchored in any ocean. Several, several people we interviewed cited the weather as one of their reasons for returning to Hawaii after a stint of living somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Aside from the snow-capped mountains, the coolest temperature is usually somewhere in the upper 60s and the highest in the lower 80s. So that's around 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. Very nice. Oh, so pleasant. There's no mosquitoes there. No. Literal paradise. Literal paradise. (sighs) Um, Chef Alan Wong spoke to that. He is one of the founders of a culinary movement called Hawaiian Regional Cuisine. More on that in a second. And he is a restaurateur in Honolulu. We definitely don't have the four seasons. So you don't got to worry about your antifreeze or your, your window scraper from the ice and the thing. Uh, we got two seasons, rain and sunshine. <laughs> or we got mango season and no mango. <laughs> so if you look really good, we got, you got mangoes starting this month. You might be able to find some at a farmer's market. And I think we got some of the best mangoes in the entire world. 
We just missed mango season. I'm still thinking about it. Oh, I saw them growing everywhere, but they were still green. Alas! <sighs> Mangoes! Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yes, thanks to Hawaii's temperatures and rainfall, they grow all kinds of things there. Pineapples, sugarcane, banana, papaya, mango, lychee, guava, coconut, breadfruit, avocado, taro, passion fruit, a.k.a. lily koi, uh, tamarind, lime, coffee, ginger root, macadamia nuts. Here's Dave Newman, the owner and operator of a couple of posh drink spots, uh, Pint and Jigger and Harry's Hardware Emporium. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think that there's any place I've ever been or ever seen that has the wealth of local produce, especially fruits, seasonal fruits. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, we can go hiking and get fresh lily koi and mountain apples and lychee. And the, I mean, just the list goes on. You know, walk down the street, get your own hibiscus to make hibiscus simple syrup. It's it's incredible. I can't wait till we get to talk about his bar more. It's awesome. But anyway, also thanks in part to the climate, Hawaii's largest industry is tourism. Even though it's a bit of a hike to get to, again, it's closest to California. Anchorage, Alaska is about 3,000 miles or 4,600 kilometers away to the north. Tokyo is 4,000 miles or 6,500 kilometers to the west. It's frequently called the crossroads of the Pacific. This isolation has its pros and cons. Here's third-generation restaurant owner Monica Taguchi-Ryan of Highway Inn, an iconic Hawaii establishment serving traditional Hawaiian and local food for more than 70 years. Because we live in the middle of the Pacific, um, everything has to be shipped in. And so what you find is you find even your basic food products, for example, things yeah. that you need for construction. Everything has to be shipped in, and there's a bit of a monopoly on, on shipping. And there's also some federal laws called the Jones Act, which requires any shipping boats that comes to our ports needs to be um, U.S. It oh, cannot wow. be foreign. And so, and so that also drives up the cost here. And, and so as residents and people that live here on this island, we pay extra Oil also gets shipped in, right. so we have one of the highest energy costs, one mm -hmm. of the highest costs of living, and also if you buy like a gallon of milk, it's probably like seven or eight bucks oh my for a gallon of milk here in Hawaii. If you look on the map and you look on the globe, like Hawaii really is isolated. It is like this little <laughs> tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is like the largest body of water you know on the planet uh -huh. and we really are this amazing piece of land um, that's just in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and um, there have always been talk about how strategically we are positioned because we are positioned between the west and the east and how that could be used in our interests for our interests that has never really materialized outside of the military position and and, and tourism that military position is an issue we'll get into later. But more to the point right now, the tourism translates to about 10 million visitors a year, Ooh. spending around $16 billion. And more and more, part of that tourism is starting to revolve around an ever-changing and diverse food and drink scene, which is a big deal for a lot of reasons. For a long time, Hawaii was known for overly sweet neon drinks pumped out of those slush machines and blandly inoffensive pan-European hotel food with some Cheeky flair. Mm -hmm. While there were plenty of delicious and interesting things happening in the food world, visitors just didn't know where to go to find it. That has changed, though, partly thanks to the larger movement of foodieism. Oh, you know, the, the interest in eating local and seasonal and increasingly Instagrammable things, um, which we've seen happening all over the world. Oh, yeah. But when it comes to Hawaii in particular, we can point to a specific and purposeful movement that was designed to bring awareness to local foods. Hawaii Regional Cuisine. It's not the be-all, end-all of what food is in Hawaii today, but it jump-started a sort of refocusing. Yeah, the, the HRC movement started almost 30 years ago, and it was meant to be a way to, to fuse and celebrate and elevate a whole lot of things going on in the cultures around Hawaii. Um, you've, got, you've got native Hawaiian cuisine developed by settlers from various parts of Polynesia over a couple thousand years, and then all these waves of colonists and immigrants going back a couple hundred years, all of whom brought along some of their cooking styles and sensibilities and ingredients. And this created, oh, an absolute volcano of a melting pot. But, but again, that wasn't 
the food being served in the big, popular, well-funded restaurants for a long time on the islands. And, and what's more, the ingredients for that, like, flat, inoffensive hotel food often had to be shipped in at great expense. Alan Wong spoke with us about how and why he and 11 other chefs came together to found the movement. Sure, it was uh, 1991. We were all guest chefing at each other's restaurants. Then one day I said to one guy, you know, wouldn't it be nice to get together and have some beers, talk story. We have all the same problems. So the first meeting was on Maui at the Maui Prince Hotel. And so we just got together, had fun, and then uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to meet again. So in, in the process, we, ha- we decided to form a nonprofit group called Hawaii Regional Cuisine. And then besides the name, it took a long time to get the name. You know, a long time ago, they used to call it Pacific Rim Cuisine. And we didn't want to call it Pacific Rim Cuisine because the, the California guys were doing that. So we wanted our own identity. So when we did that, we had two goals in mind. Uh, the first one helped develop an agricultural network in the state of Hawaii. So we all gave up our, our names of our vendors, uh, emails. No, no, no emails back then, fax. Okay, that's true. And then the Department of Ag put together a small little directory with all of those contacts. So when you fast forward that goal to 2019, we have the most amount of farmer's markets than ever before in Hawaii. Almost every day of the week we can go to a farmer's market all across the island, all across the state. The, the cooks today and the chefs have the most amount of local product than ever before to cook with. So that was part of the first goal. The second goal was to help spread the word that there was a new cuisine in Hawaii. So we, we all pitched in one chapter we created a book called The New Cuisine of Hawaii. So the joke used to be in Hawaii that the best food in Hawaii was on the plane over, right? Everybody knows that one. And so finally now, this book became like a, a thing we gave away to people so they can see that it's, it's changed. So you know how like Nouvelle Cuisine changed uh, cooking across America or across the globe? It was basically what Nouvelle Cuisine did to classical cuisine uh, was signal a change. This was different now. We didn't have to do classical cooking. We didn't rely on escoffier. Okay? Uh, the food was very different. It was lighter. It was more fresh. It looked different. The portions changed and whatnot. And if you went to a restaurant back in the day, at that time, you'd find a lot of hotels with continental menus. And in a continental menu in Chicago, New York, or Honolulu would be the same. You would get your duck alarans, you would get your Chateaubriand, you get, you know, those kinds of dishes. And so the same thing happened in Hawaii. So in 1991, uh, Hawaii Regional Cuisine was born, and it kind of changed the way Hawaii ate forever. So be careful and not to say Hawaiian Regional Cuisine. Right, yeah. Okay. Because, because... One of the biggest misconceptions about Hawaii is when you go to a restaurant in Hawaii, uh, you think you're going to a Hawaiian restaurant. Or, you know, you meet somebody from Hawaii, a local person, they might not have any Hawaiian blood in them. It's its own ethnicity. Hawaiians have their own food. So the, the Hawaiians were the first uh, wave of people that came to Hawaii. And on the, on the boat, they brought things with them. But... Uh, Things like kalua pig, the, the food in the emu. We ate a lot of raw things back then. Uh, we ate poke or raw fish. Um, things like that. So that's, that's Hawaii. That's Hawaiian versus Hawaii. The other misconception about Hawaii is that, that everybody thinks that when you put a pineapple on a burger or a pineapple <laughs> on a pizza, that's Hawaiian burger and that's Hawaiian pizza. Well, we don't eat like that. Not at all. <laughs> so if you get a chance to go on the beach, just listen for this, okay? A couple is telling the other couple, asking, what should we go to eat to di- for dinner tonight? And so the couple replies, we just went to a great Hawaiian restaurant, okay? And uh, we went to Alan Wong's. Well, I'm not a Hawaiian restaurant. 
We don't serve Hawaiian food. We serve the things like our own style of poke. We take kalua pig and we put it in a dish with clams, but we're not, we're not gonna serve food that, that is right out of the, the Hawaiian cookbook. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now, th- this is a very important point that, that due to my ignorance, I didn't really fully understand when we were going into this trip, um, but that our interviewees were, were kind enough to explain. One of those was Chandra Lucariello, a cocktail expert who's currently the director of mixology and spirits education for the distribution company Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits of Hawaii. Here's Chandra. I think that we, we've all, just growing up here, you know, you embrace everyone's culture. I think the most misunderstood part about Hawaiian culture per se, like quote unquote Hawaiian, is that uh, the Hawaiians were here first. And then all of like, like for me, I'm Asian and I come from a Chinese, Japanese, Korean background. And we all, all of my ancestors came because of the plantation, but the native Hawaiians were here first. And so they are the ones that like really have the authority on the true Hawaiian culture and like what is like really Hawaii. Everything else that we've brought here is just adds to the melting pot of Hawaii. But um, I think that the Hawaiian culture gets misunderstood a lot because people think, oh, you're from Hawaii, you must be Hawaiian, which isn't true. I'm Chinese, Japanese, Korean. I live in Hawaii, I grew up here, but those people that are actually from here and their ancestors were here first, those are the Hawaiians. Clearly, to understand where Hawaii's cuisine is now, you need to understand at least a little bit about its history. And we'll get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, when we asked chefs and restaurateurs and bartenders and Lyft drivers about the foods that they grew up with and or that they eat now in Hawaii, just about everyone talked about the island's history. Here's Alan again. Okay, the Hawaiians came by canoe. They discovered Hawaii. The second wave of people that came to Hawaii were, I'm going to call the tall ships. Okay, the same tall ships that the pilgrims came over, Marco Polo, Christopher Columbus, okay? And uh, many things happened. So on one of the ships came uh, disease. Well, first of all, on one ship, they brought sugarcane first, then pineapple. Was born the, the plantation, okay? 
the workers were 100% Hawaiian blood. And so on one of the ships came disease, the cockroach, the rat, it was, it was never here. And so 66% of the native Hawaiians died, decimated. So when that's your workforce, what do you do? So the first place they went to was China. So they hired these men, they left their families back home, three-year contract, some got paid six bucks a month. And back then that was enough money for them, they lived in the plantation and uh, to send some money back to their family. And then the next were the, the Portuguese. Difference with the Portuguese, they brought their families. Then the Puerto Ricans, then the Japanese, Koreans, the Okinawans, and the Filipinos. Those were the first immigrants. So imagine that besides the Hawaiians, okay, and besides the Caucasians, you had these immigrants now. So this was the beginning for me, the beginning of Hawaii regional cuisine, which is the borrowing of all the ethnic influences you find in Hawaii. So we, we talked about Escoffier. So if you're in France and you're a young culinary student, you might say, well, go look into Escoffier. But if you grew up here, um, you, you need to have some background, your, your cooking base or your foundation is probably going to be rooted in some European cuisine or French cooking. But go look into the, the, the ethnic cookbooks, the Japanese cookbook, the Chinese cookbook, the Korean cookbook, and look for ideas from there. So that's what I tell the cooks to do here. That was a lot, mm -hmm. very quickly. Let, let's, let's unpack some of that. Yes. All right, so brief history lesson. Oh, so brief. So brief. Okay. <laughs> Polynesians were the first to arrive to the archipelago, landing on the Big Island some 1,500 years ago in big canoes with only the stars as their guide. Small communities formed of fishermen and farmers ruled by chieftains, and some fought over land. The first European to make contact was probably Captain James Cook in 1778 on the island of Kauai. Cook dubbed the archipelago the Sandwich Islands for the Earl of Sandwich. Cook was killed in a skirmish with Hawaiians the following year on the island of Hawaii. Then, amidst further European exploration and incursion, along comes King Kamehameha. Though he was only the nephew of the former king of the island of Hawaii, Kamehameha wrested control of the island from his contenders and, over the next couple decades, conquered the rulers of the other islands with the help of European weapons and uh, united the chiefdoms and peoples into a singular kingdom of Hawaii, mostly. Uh, it's, it's a long and complicated story. Indeed. He died in 1819, but to this day, he is celebrated. June 11th is King Kamehameha Day. We were there. Oh, we had no idea how many parades there would be. No, we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> um, but through all of this, th there were already changes happening in Hawaii's foodways. Monica talked about it. If you think about pre-contact, when Hawaiians arrived, they had two main migrations, the first one from the Marquesas and the second one from Tahiti. And this is all pre-contact 1778. And what they brought with them on their va'a or their canoe were things like taro, which we call kalo in Hawaiian, mm -hmm. banana, which is maya, coconut, niu. Um, they also brought um, breadfruit, ulu, mm -hmm. um, and they brought dog, ilio, chicken, moa, and they brought one more animal that I can't, oh, pigs, pua. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and they brought things like, even like um, arrowroot, which we call oh. pia. But then you, you see what happens in 1778 and the early 1800s is you start to see whalers and merchants starting to arrive here in Hawaii. And what they start bringing with them is salted fish. And they start seeing that also Hawaiians have salt. Mm -hmm. That, you know, around the world, um, salt is a very valuable commodity. Salt became, you know, I would assume, sandalwood actually was at one time uh, um, something that Hawaiians actually traded as well, sand sandalwood, um, before the pineapple and sugarcane industry came about. But, you know, in, in 1778, early 1800s, um, now you see salted fish. Mm -hmm. So that's how you see um, lomi salmon. We have this dish called pipikaula. Captain George Vancouver actually gifted King Kamehameha I cattle. Um, this eventually created the Paniolo history, which is a Hawaiian cowboy. Yeah. Um, they had a kapu on it, which kapu kind of means like forbidden. So 
King Kamehameha the first said, you know, nobody could touch this animal that mm-hmm. they've never came across, which was a cattle. Mm-hmm. And they had to bring the Mexican vaqueros, which I believe means... Cowboy. <laughs> yep, cowboy. That second voice there was Monica's husband and uh, Highway Inn's chief operating officer, Russell Ryan. And uh, yeah, so that's how beef became part of Hawaii's cuisines. We actually went to a working cattle ranch on Oahu called Kualoa Ranch. Um, It's also a nature reserve and a film location. You might recognize it from things like Jurassic Park or uh, Jumanji or Lost. Or the big footprint from the 1998 Godzilla that I've somehow (laughs) managed to bring up in this show probably 11 times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, Lauren and I got a very goofy dinosaur picture there. Oh, so good. When we, were, we weren't working. And that was our vacation time. Although it is within the realm of possibility we would have done that during work as well. <laughs> I want that picture, by the way. Oh, yeah. Send it over to you. Thank you. It's a gorgeous place, and I'd go out on a limb and say the most beautiful backdrop we've ever had for an interview. Oh, we have been lucky to report in some really amazing locations in our day, but, but yes, that's— it's sort of uncontested. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, so we got to speak there to Taylor Kellerman, who is the Director of Agriculture and Land Stewardship at Kualoa Ranch. Uh, Taylor gave us a brief rundown of Hawaii's cowboys. So um, it's actually incredibly ingrained in our history uh, because, you know, the first cattle were brought to Hawaii by um, Captain George Vancouver in the late 1700s as a gift to, you know, one of our first monarchs that, you know, was able to get everybody together, so Kamehameha I. And they actually put a kapu or a, um, like a tabu, I guess is a, a like English word on it. Um, and they were let to roam free. And then, you know, 50 years later, all of a sudden, the impact of the environment was quite clear. So they brought in um, Spanish vaqueros, which was mispronounced, and what eventually became paniolo, which is the term for Hawaiian cowboy, mm-hmm. to teach uh, Hawaiians how to um, handle cattle and horseman, horsemanship and things like that. And by the late 1800s, um, Hawaiians had become so adept at it and so good at it that uh, they were going to Wyoming, and there's, there's um, stories of... Um, Mr. Purdy going to the Wyoming Rodeo in 1906 and winning the whole thing, you know. So there's a huge history behind it. And, you know, ranching has become part of the landscape. Back to Monica. And so now we have pipi kaula, pipi meaning beef, Mm -hmm. um, like strips or jerked beef. They would salt it to, you know, when they cut up the animal, they could preserve as much meat by making it into like salted or or jerky. Um, And so you have this story of Pipicola now in the Paniola Hawaiian cowboy history. And, and different people throughout, or different groups of people throughout, you know, the decades um, brought over different types of, of products. So like 1794, which you find is um, Don Francisco Marin arrives in Honolulu and he starts bringing tomatoes. So now we have the Hawaiian ceviche, which is bomi salmon. You mm-hmm. get the salted fish, and now you get this tomato that's all diced up, and you have lomi salmon. Now, it is a, it's a food item that comes post-Western world contact, but because it's been around since the late 1700s, early 1800s, people have now adopted it as part of the Hawaiian food yeah. culture. And so you see lomi salmon. And now, uh, Monica's mentioned the dish lomi salmon a couple of times. Um, This dish is interesting in that it is indeed now a part of the uh, traditional Hawaiian plate lunch, which is a popular type of meal involving a a small portion of a main dish and a few sides, sort of like the southern meat and three. Um, And and lomi salmon is a cured salmon served with like a tomato and onion dressing like a salsa almost, except like there are no salmon in the waters around Hawaii, tomato is not a native fruit. It's just an excellent example of a dish that was created by this melding of cultures. Whalers started coming through Hawaii in 1819 and the first Christian missionaries in 1820. Hawaiian sandalwood was a hot commodity. All of this brought lots of new trade and industry to support it and new agriculture to support the diets of the growing population of Westerners involved. But it also brought new diseases and pests, as Alan said. The indigenous population dropped from around 300,000 people when Cook arrived in 1778 to about 70,000 people in 1853. 
Um, plus, a lot of political and social changes were occurring. In 1819, after Kamehameha's death, just a whole bunch of cultural stuff went down that, that culminated in the overturning of the traditional kapu system. Monica and Taylor both mentioned uh, that there was a kapu on beef. Yeah, uh, Kapu was a system of sacred, religious, political, cultural, and agricultural rules that laid out what jobs could be done by whom and how. And um, it codified a number of differences between the classes and the sexes. The word kapu, by the way, is related to, um, to other Polynesians' concept of tapu, which is where we get the English word taboo. Um, Cook wrote down tapu as taboo um, during his explorations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so how, how this system was dismantled is a more complex story than we have time for. But one particularly fascinating part is that the turning point seems to have been dinner. Yes. Um, men and women weren't supposed to eat meals together under this system, and women weren't supposed to eat certain foods. But Liholiho, a son of Kamehameha and the new ruler after his death, staged a dinner with his mother, uh, Kiopolani, and another one of his father's wives. And it was a cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And it caused, or maybe indicated, a loss of faith, largely replaced with Christianity. There was a continued influx of Americans and Europeans. Sandalwood was over-harvested and the trade collapsed to be replaced by lucrative sugarcane and pineapple plantations. But with a decreased native population, those plantations needed workers. Monica expounded on this period of rapid cultural transformation. The California gold rush spurred the demand for Hawaiian sugar. So now we see in the 1850s, the first laborers that came to work on the plantations were Chinese laborers, Mm -hmm. and they did not bring their wives with them. So today you see a lot of Chinese-Hawaiian ethnic mixes. Then the Civil War in 1861 also continued to increase the demand for sugar. And so now you have these business people that have this very profitable business. And uh, I think King Kamehameha the first, actually, if you take a look at the Hawaiian flag, the Hawaiian flag has a Union Jack on it. And um, from my understanding, King Kamehameha the first understood how the Western world was going to significantly impact the Hawaiian culture and perhaps wanted to have relationships more with, with England yeah. <laughs> than, this, when, than, the, than the United States and so adopted some of the, the parts of the British flag and the Union Jack. And so you see in the Hawaiian flag the Union Jack, which is our state flag. Right, yeah. um, you then find um, in 1868 Japanese laborers coming on board. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese laborers were perhaps the largest group of immigrants. Uh, about 200,000 uh, Japanese immigrants came. I, I believe they, they all believed that at one time they would go back to Japan and they would make whatever money they could and then go back to Japan. But they found out very quickly when they worked on the plantation how hard life was on the plantation and they were very much like indentured servants. Yeah. And so it was really tough to get out of that life. And then in 1878, you find the Portuguese. Now the Portuguese, being that they're fair-skinned, were an ethnic group that were typically, if anything, promoted to what they call lunas or supervisors on the plantations. So now in Hawaii, you also see a lot of Portuguese, Chinese, Hawaiian ethnic mixes because Mm of all these different ethnic groups coming on board. Hawaii's history also has Puerto Ricans. And so we also have some food influences from from Puerto Ricans and green bananas, for example, patelli stew. I'm not sure. I always get confused if it's patelli or pastelli. I'm not really quite sure how, you know, different people have different ways here pronouncing it. And then you also have, like, the Koreans coming on board in the early 1900s, um, and then also Filipinos arriving. And so what you find in Hawaii's food culture now is you have this very diverse hodgepodge (laughs) of foods um, on our table today. Meanwhile, all of this money and the influence that goes along with that were changing the politics in Hawaii just as quickly. A powerful, growing white minority coerced the Hawaiian monarchy into a number of declarations and treaties that mainly benefited those white people, and specifically Americans. It granted them economic bonuses and gave the U.S. military sole rights to set up a base on the islands at Pearl Harbor. 
This culminated in 1887 when the last king of Hawaii, Kalakua, was forced at gunpoint into signing a new constitution, afterwards nicknamed the Bayonet Constitution, a document which put a massive dent in his powers while simultaneously granting suffrage to the rich, mostly white, landowners. That's not all. It excluded Asians from voting and those who did not meet the income requirements as well. After Kalakua's death in 1891, his sister was crowned Queen Liliuokalani. Kalani. When she tried to reverse the bayonet constitution, things escalated. Um, in 1893, a coup designed by businessmen and backed by the U.S. Marines overthrew the monarchy, um, primarily so that they could control the island's sugarcane-based economy. Uh, Lili Kalani and her supporters fought for their kingdom, but she was eventually placed under house arrest and, in 1895, yielded under protest to avoid further loss of life. The U.S. government annexed Hawaii in 1898, um, but she continued to appeal for a free Hawaii until her death in 1917. The song Aloha Oi, she wrote it. Iolani Palace, where she ruled and later was imprisoned, was restored and reopened in the 1970s. Um, But, so, under American rule, the Hawaiian language was banned from being taught in schools, Um, though a pidgin that's sometimes called Hawaii Creole English was developed by plantation workers and passed down to their children. They also developed stuff like like local iterations of dim sum and noodle soups. Businessmen in Hawaii started pushing to create a tourism industry. In 1901, businessmen from Honolulu paid for a promotional mainland tour to drum up interest to visit. And two years later, in 1903, over 2,000 people a year were making the five-day trip. By the time World War II was just getting underway, that number was 30,000. Resorts were popping up, all the celebrities were going, and surfing was taking off, thanks in no small part to Olympic swimmer Duke Kahanamuku. Another change due to American rule was who was allowed to come work in Hawaii. With restrictions on Japanese and Chinese immigration, plantation owners started hiring um, uh, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, and Koreans. And as Monica said, all of these folks brought with them their customs, their beliefs, their languages, and their foods. But, of course, there were some racial tensions, especially heading into World War II— After the bombing in Pearl Harbor, the U.S. declared martial law um, and a suspension of a lot of civil rights. Nearly 40 percent of Hawaii's population at the time were first-generation Japanese immigrants. They faced a lot of discrimination, and the United States interred some 1,250 citizens in camps on Oahu alone, um, though intense local resistance prevented more widespread incarceration. These were the lean times when spam entered the scene. Yes. Hawaii became the 50th state on August 21st, 1959. During the 60s and 70s, Hawaii saw another major shift as the sugarcane and pineapple businesses scaled back and huge hotels and apartments and shopping centers were erected, changing the layout of entire towns. Honolulu saw the biggest transformation. This is when we see Waikiki, and this is where the famous beaches are in Honolulu, become basically a large resort. One big one. Yes. By the 1970s, tourism was raking in $1 billion for the state. Whew. Uh, The Hawaiian language almost died out during this time. By the 1970s, it's estimated that only around 2,000 people grew up speaking it at home. But thanks to a rebellious Waikiki radio station and these immersion schools that were developed in the 1980s with no help from the government, um, some 18,000 people now speak Hawaiian at home. And the state's official languages are English and Hawaiian. And that pigeon that I mentioned earlier never went away. Um, Part of the Hawaii regional cuisine movement involved purposefully using pigeon and Hawaiian vocabulary to describe local foods and dishes even those that are being sold mostly to tourists. Mm -hmm. President Clinton apologized for America's part in overthrowing Hawaii's monarchy in 1993. Oh, century, century later. It's just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that, that more or less brings us to today. But first, it brings us to one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. 
So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Let's talk about Hawaii today because we're talking about a state that is still changing rapidly. Another person that we got to speak with is Roy Yamaguchi. Um, He's one of the founders of Hawaiian Regional Cuisine and the founder and master chef of Roy's Restaurants and a number of other concepts. Um, We interviewed him at a poke battle. Uh More on that in a future episode for sure. But, like, picture six of Hawaii's preeminent chefs serving tiny free plates of fancy raw fish to hundreds upon hundreds of excited people in an underground supermarket on a Saturday. With a lot of bells. So, so much shouting and Mm -hmm. chiming. Mm -hmm. And free alcohol samples. And free, yes, gosh. Um, This is part of what it means to cook and eat on Oahu. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yeah, Roy talked about what the food scene is like. Well, I think it's changing a lot. I think, you know, a lot of it had to do with, I think, it's it's kind of like this uh, natural progression, the natural flow, you know, with the Hawaiian regional cuisine movement. Which started, um, you know, getting the farmers and ranchers, getting the uh, chefs together with growers. And then that kind of involved and with, with a lot of great things happening in the agricultural world. And then, for, for instance, like Foodland here, you know, the, um, the market started to bring in a lot of great products, lo- a lot of local products for the consumers that live here. So with that transition... You know, the restaurant scene started to get more involved in working with farmers and ranchers. So now, today, these restaurants are able to, you know, work with a lot of ranchers and farmers um, and provide better quality food. So I think it's a national transition, natural progression of, um, of all these uh, different things happening in, in the state which makes the opportunity for more chefs, younger chefs, to come in and open uh, restaurants. Yeah. So, so, you know, back in the old days, 30 years ago, there was a lot of um, hotel chefs that started to open up restaurants. So you had hotel chefs, you had restaurants and hotels, and that, that was the primary places where people could go out and eat. And eat right. good food. Yeah, yeah. But, but then those chefs started to leave and started to open up their own restaurants, independent established restaurants throughout the community. But they were basically kind of continental, you know, kind of like a European influence. Right, right. And then, you know, later on, guys like us came in, started to open up independent restaurants, uh, utilizing our background, 
you know the, uh, the the you know the great products that Hawaii has to offer and um, infusing our style of cooking, my style of you know my childhood, you know Japanese, Chinese, French uh, fusion. And then now we have another generation of chefs where, you know, these younger chefs um, that are kind of exploring and, and, and kind of taking uh, whatever influences that they've had in the past, but yet opening these smaller restaurants, these smaller footprint uh, restaurants, um, utilizing, you know, the Hawaiian culture as a background. This is what we saw Everywhere on the island, so many amazing chefs who either immigrated to Hawaii or are the children or grandchildren of immigrants who are taking these disparate cooking styles and ingredients and making them deliciously their own. Um, But also amazing Hawaiian chefs who are reaching back into native Hawaii's cooking styles and ingredients and presenting those to, to great success. A common thread, the through line really, through all of this is a conversation about sustainability, which is a conversation everywhere right now, but even more so for a group of islands that's thousands of miles away from anything. In a lot of ways, all of the problems that we see throughout the United States and a lot of other places in the world with with income inequality and access to an education about fresh, affordable foods are exacerbated because of that distance um, and because of the tourism industry. Land and housing and water and food are expensive there. Here's Alan. The Department of Ag came out with a story and says, we import over 85% of our food into Hawaii. And if we can move that dial back 10%, so 10% has become important to us, that, that, that number, 10%. So if we did that, we would be generating like 2,300 jobs, generate $6 million in taxes, the farming community gets $94 million, our economy 188 But the whole thing about that is if, if we had the same uh, tidal wave that happened in Japan or in uh, Thailand, we would not be able to recover as fast as they did. So the idea of being self-sufficient, you know, that 10% thing uh, comes into play here. So the farmer is going to tell you if if the farmers farm, we farm more, that is food security. Farmers will farm if they make $1. Farmers will not farm if they lose money. In fact, nobody goes into business thinking they're going to lose money anyway, right? The average age of a farmer is 65 years old all across America. The kids are watching their parents farm and making less money and less money because the cost of doing business is rising all across America. So our small part is to buy their product. Now. You might say some restaurants don't buy local product because a tomato could cost four fifty a pound. And the imported one, the, the, the pink one that's real hard, the one that only McDonald's buys, is $1.50 a pound. So sometimes people with budgets or restaurants with budgets, they can't do it. But if, if every restaurant did their part and bought local, supported the local farmer, we could move that dial back 10%. Okay, to keep Hawaii more, not only self-sufficient, but more sustainable. You know, right now it's not a good blueprint right now. So, you know, that kind of deal. They figured it out that a, a 747, when we had it, a plane coming over, uh, produces enough gas emissions, uh, the equivalent to like 5,400 cars on the road at the same time. So another reason, the carbon footprint to, to help spawn more farmers, grow more local, move that dial back. You know, we're an island state, we require the barge. It's either the barge or the plane that brings food over. I think a lot of it is awareness. There's still a lot of people that don't know what's available in Hawaii. And then after that is education. You know, what do you do with this product? You know, like for example, uh, one year 90% of all the star fruit went to Canada. But imagine if the supermarket didn't have the cantaloupe and honeydew that was like rock hard anyway, and it was replaced with all of the, the ripe star fruit. Initially, they're gonna say, well, what is that? How are you gonna use that? How do we eat that, you know? But if that's all you had, it was in season, and it was ripe, and it was juicy, and it was sweet, okay? And it was good for you. Uh, and you learn how to use it. Then all of a sudden, we get to keep that crop that goes 90% outside, in Hawaii. 
You know what I mean? Then we don't need to import as much. It's awareness and education. We also got to speak with Hawaii State Senator Donovan De La Cruz about this. He's chair of the Senate Committee on Ways and Means and a member of the Committee on Education, among other projects. We caught up with him in the aftermath of the poke battle. <sighs> we have this word in Hawaii. It's a Hawaiian word called kuleana. And if anybody, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people talk to you about aloha and maybe ho'oponopono. But I mean, one of my favorite Hawaiian words is actually kuleana. And that's what's your obligation? What's your responsibility? What's your commitment to uh, either your family, to your community, to your to your neighbors and I feel like that's my my kuleana is to turn my community um, into a a better place for the future uh, so that people can have a better quality of life not just young people but people aging in place too you know because food is evolving so much where with a with a large geriatric population even food has to kind of change a little bit to match that and Hawaii has a has a high uh, percentage of, of an aging population. So does Japan. So does the U.S. So we, we're like a good gateway for that kind of innovation. You know, we just have to own that space. I mean, there's so many opportunities with energy, food, aging. We just have to be a lot more aggressive in in these ideas of how we're going to become globally competitive or relevant. For as many upscale and sustainability-focused dining experiences as there are, there's also a huge demand and and honestly need for inexpensive, quick food on the go um, from convenience stores and takeout restaurants. Those takeout spots called drive-ins are incredibly tasty. Oh, gosh, I'm still dreaming about some char sui. Mm. Um, But they're also kind of difficult to make healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the trade-off for the lower cost to the creator and the consumer is that they produce a lot of plastic and styrofoam waste. Um, We'll have to do whole episode, episodes, plural, possibly, on some of these sustainability issues. Absolutely. It's all part of what makes Hawaii unique. One of the other cultural standouts, as cliche and touristified as it sounds, is aloha. We heard it from everyone we spoke to. Here's Chandra. It's really a sense of aloha. It's so hard to summarize that in just like a word, but it's more the feeling that you get from the people that live here, the sense of ohana or family, that um, everyone's so interconnected. And even in the bar scene, like everyone's encouraging one another to get better, to do more, to challenge themselves. It's never about like jealousy or, oh, I want to be the best bar and, you know, we want to be super competitive. It's never like that. Like everyone's sharing their secrets and open doors. And it's really like a brotherhood, which is awesome. And here's Monica. The restaurant industry is is unique in the sense that it's one of those industries where, for the most part, not always, I mean, you get those customers that you really prefer not to have, but, you know, it's it's to make people happy. We're in an industry that you can make people happy, you know, unlike doctors and lawyers you know, EMTs, right? They're, they're always in, in difficult situations that are not um, either people are fighting or people are sick or, you know, there's, it's an emergency situation. Um, there's a lot of pressure in the kitchen, but ultimately we are in a position to be a positive experience in people's lives. And I think oftentimes restaurant people forget this because it is very, there's a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, our servers, I always like to to share with our servers that it's kind of like having a hundred bosses every day. Get me this. I want this. This is not good. You know, and, and it's stressful for our servers just as much as it's stressful for our kitchen staff trying to get the food out. But the one thing here in Hawaii I think that makes us quite unique and, and quite fortunate is the sense of aloha. And and not to sound cliche about it, but we do have this overarching um, cultural value of aloha, which anybody who is born and raised or moved to the islands would be very aware of. And like alo, you know, like forward or presence, ha meaning breath, you know, the presence of life. Um, to to be compassionate, to show kindness, to show grace. You know, these these are things that are just very much a part of the Hawaiian culture, the host culture. And, and so it's much easier to try to uh, train people because they fundamentally understand this idea of aloha. 
there's like southern hospitality i guess would be a bit similar they have a very unique type of hospitality perspective i I think that's what's really great about just food in general It, it is such a universal language i'm sure many people have said this or shared this with you before but it truly is a universal language. When you sit down and you offer food or you make food for someone, it truly is an act of love. And and so, you know, I tell all my staff that, and I'm sure every chef, every cook knows this, the secret ingredient is always going to be aloha. It's always going to be love. Um, because if you don't have the feeling of aloha when you're cooking or the feeling of love, that's the mana or the 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 spiritualness of that process is is what makes you care about it. And that's why grandma's food is always the best, right? I mean, anybody's grandfather, well, in my case, it was my grandpa. Uh-huh. But, you know, that's why grandmas and grandpas, you know, cook the best. Because when they cook for, for their children and their grandchildren, is always infused with aloha. And uh, chef and Hawaiian cultural practitioner Kialoha Domingo also spoke to this. It's just like... Uh it's just a whole nother level, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, Hawaii people, I mean, I'm sure it's unlike other cultures, but we connect to our food in, in a little higher level, a lot higher level than most people. You know, we have, sure. you know, in traditional times, food was was even more taboo than, my wife hates when I say this, but it was more taboo than sex. Yeah. And and that's, that's the truth because... Sure. Um, sustenance you know sustenance is it's imperative and uh, the Hawaiian people we truly did worship our food we view our food as a physical manifestation of of our ancestral deities and traditional gods yeah. you know the taro the taro plant itself that's for us uh, you know I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the truth in my day, I grew up eating poi out of a plastic bag, okay. and I'm totally fine with that. But as time went on, you know, I learned more about traditional history and culture and beliefs. And with this cultural renaissance, um, we're teaching our children what we've learned from the history books: that taro is our ancestor. The taro plant is literally related to us right. yeah we're right. descended from a taro plant yeah. so we treat it as as our elder brother as our as our ancestor as our kupuna and when the taro is on the table whether in the form of a bowl of umeke of poi or whatever else it is um we behave accordingly you know you wouldn't speak harshly over it you wouldn't be scolding the kids you wouldn't be saying you know how terrible a day you had mm-hmm. um, and, and that really that really lends to that whole family um, that that positive vibe you know when you're around food it's about being grateful for what you have and yeah. about sustenance and about yeah. you know so I always say we Hawaiians we love our food we love our food so it's not just about st- sticking into your mouth and and enjoying the flavor you know which don't get me wrong you know it's um definitely something that i love but uh just the fact that when you consume this food it's really partaking of the gods we're teaching our children this this respect for food you know and it's very important for us to set the example for them you know we didn't grow up with it, it came out of a plastic bag Today, we pound it fresh, you know. They know where it comes from, from, you know, they know the varieties, they know the different meanings. So, I mean, just a whole nother level of understanding, so. So we come to the conclusion of the first of our Hawaii mini-series. We have so many exciting episodes coming your way. The long-requested coffee episode, Mm -hmm. passion fruit, cocktails, poke, poi, slash taro, the fishing industry, So much stuff. Oh, yeah. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. I know a lot of you have been to Hawaii, sent some pictures. Keep those coming. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. You can contact us via email at hello at saverpod.com and tell us where we should go next. Yes. Uh, You can also find us on social media. We are at saverpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. 
our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis, our interviewees, and also to um, to a number of humans who helped us find those interviewees. Michelle McGowan-Rice of the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival, Don Sakamoto-Paiva of Put It On My Plate, and Joy Goto and Maria Hartfield of the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you so much to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.